two, three. With more than 3,000 career shows playing an average of 228 gigs a year, bass player and musical director to the stars, Ivan Funkboy Bodley, is one of the hardest working musicians in the business today. In his debut book, Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star, Ivan chronicles his life on the road performing with everyone from Sting and Elvis Costello to Bo Diddley and Winona Judd, including 50 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. On today's episode, Bodley talks about his first performance at his high school talent show and how that moment came full circle 28 years later when he performed on stage with Sting. You'll also hear about the perils of being a substitute musician for a Broadway show, how he and his bandmates witnessed the ancient practice of payola carried out live on stage with the self-proclaimed king of rock and soul, with a career that has taken him to more than 29 countries, playing to audiences of up to 82,000 people in performance settings ranging from jazz duos to 150-member symphony orchestras, it's no wonder that Ivan Funkboy Bodley truly is a working-class rock star. I'm Charles Urich, and this is Life in the Grooves. We invite you to visit our website at lifeinthegrooves.com where you can subscribe, listen to your favorite episodes, or follow us on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out our new YouTube channel at Life in the Grooves Podcast. And now, here is my conversation with Ivan Bodley. So congratulations on the book. I I know that you've had experience writing press releases and liner notes from your early days when you were working at the record label, but how different was it to write a book as opposed to writing music? Well, what you're saying is exactly right. I kind of got my start in the music business uh, on the industry side, and I was doing exactly as you say. I was writing album liner notes. I was writing... uh, press releases and biographies for the for the acts that we promoted on on epic records epic uh-huh. portrait and cbs associated records was the the label i worked for and at, when i got there uh in new york uh they were farming out all of the press writing the, the press releases and the biographies they were farming them out to freelance writers Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'd always fancied myself a writer or if I'd just been doing it through school or whatnot, but I was like, you know, I can, I can do that, you know, and I started, started doing that and saving them some money, but also keeping it in-house and, and doing it myself, which I enjoyed because that's the time when you got to really interact with the artists and, and, and uh, sort of reinforce their message that they were trying to get out you know that's that's the opportunity you have with a press release is like what are we selling how are we selling it what 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 image are we putting forward what's the recording about um and it became an object in extolling virtue is what i called it because um i had to figure out you know there's some some recordings some sound recordings you you hear uh, 
you might not necessarily like, but right. I, I had to figure out who did like this record. Somebody likes it. It might only be the lead singer's mother, but somebody likes this record, and I had to figure out sort of why and, and, and extol that virtue to the general public in something that was going to go out as a press release or a biography. Um, and then sort of being inside the label uh, the the workings of the machinery there, you know, then so you get the opportunity to sort of write some liner notes to some releases. Uh, I guess the most prominent one I did was for uh, Stanley Clark's album called If This Bass Could Only Talk, which came out in about 1988 on Portrait Records. Mm-hmm. And Stanley has always thought of me as as much of a, a, a prose writer as, as as a musician. I was a student of his at the time. So he, you know, he considers me a writer uh, even more than he considers me a musician or as, as equal parts, I should say. So I don't know. It was kind of always a parallel sort of thing for me. Uh, writing felt natural to me, writing prose and writing music and writing arrangements also feels natural to me. So it's kind of two halves of the same brain or maybe, you know, the same half of the same brain. I'm not sure which, but it's easy for me. You also write in the book that every memoir you've ever read always starts out with this long biographical chapter, (laughs) and I believe you're quoted as saying, so what? So what's the big deal? When do we get to the good stuff? (laughs) So let's get to the good stuff. What I really like about the book was that you took a nonlinear approach, and I was wondering if this was something that was intentional, or did you have other ideas as to how to arrange all of these stories? No, that was something that was a very deliberate choice that I made based on having read so many different, you know, biographies. You you get books and it's by somebody you like and admire and you know their work and you want to find out sort of the inner workings of how they came up with X, Y, or Z. And they always start, well, where? I went to elementary school here and then I went to junior high school here and then I went to high school here. And, and it's it's fascinating stuff and it's necessary to know sort of who they are and where they came from. But it always seemed like you got to about page 100 before you, you get to the point, the sentence where it says, and then we started our first band, you know, mm. and that's the, <laughs> that's the information that you wanted to hear, you know, like, uh, yes, I want to know where you came from and, and the coal mining town you, you grew up in and all that kind of stuff. But it always seems laborious to me to get to the stuff that's sort of immediately interesting. So I, I made a conscious choice to like, you know, I do have a bunch of that information, but it's kind of like, uh, broken up into different chunks and sort of sprinkled throughout. And, and as it relates to specific stories that I've had with things on the road, you know, sort of like that'll remind me of this. And then, oh, by the way, this all started when I, you know, went to high school in a small town in Tennessee and learned to play, etc. As I was creating this thing, I had a few friends of mine that I would sort of handed out pages to as like beta readers to sort of get some feedback to see how they were I uh, was registering with them, and, and uh, more than one of them told me, like, you know, maybe you need to think about making this more linear. So I really had to sort of put some thought to it to decide, like, do I really want to do that, or am I making a conscious choice, a deliberate choice to make it nonlinear? And in the end, as you see, I decided to, to stick with a nonlinear approach because I, I found it more interesting. And you do a great job of getting the reader excited in the first few chapters, highlighting these um, great experiences playing with these legendary artists. And then once you've pulled us in as a reader, you're able to step back and reveal more about yourself and the early years. What are some of the moments that stand out for you when you were first starting out? 
One of my favorite stories in the book is um, somewhere early on, you know, I, I talk about the very first high school talent show I ever played. Uh, and this was at a, a, an all-boys preparatory school in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I, I had the distinct sense that the entire student body actively hated me as a human being. Um, uh, that may only be slightly exaggerated, but only slightly. You know, it was, it, high school was a very tough time for me developmentally and just on a lot of different levels. Uh, I'm not crying the blues. It just, you know, a lot of people have lived through much worse than I have. But it was, it was, a, tough, it was a tough period. So playing this high school talent show, you know, I was playing with a, a group of, of like-minded high school musicians, and we were playing cover songs of the day, which at that time were things like uh, the Rolling Stones and uh, Rush and Tommy Two-Tone and, and kind of most importantly, The Police. We sound remarkably good for a high school band, I have to say. Like, you know, you can hear us sort of making rookie mistakes, um, but still sort of remarkably cohesive given the fact that I'd probably only been playing bass about six months of my life at that point. But what happens is this gymnasium full of people who actively loathe and despise me as a human being explode into applause. Like there's this giant ovation of just complete adoration that comes at you which is 180 degrees antithetical to anything I'd ever experienced in that institution, you know. So I'm like, hmm, what, what is this sudden acceptance, and can I replicate this at any point in my life and carry it forward? You know, it sort of, it kind of set me on the path to sort of thinking about, well, maybe being a musician is something that people will admire, mm -hmm. you know, and, and will accept you for. So it was the kind of thing that it, it's really set me on the path towards trying to figure out how to one day do that. Because I didn't pick up a bass till I was a senior in high school, I was in no kind of shape to, like, go immediately to music school. You know, like, uh, my college ex experience started out as a, a biomedical engineering student for two years, and then I decided to transfer to the psychology department. So I have a psych degree. That's my undergrad degree is in psychology. Wow. I didn't get a, a music degree until, you know, a few years later, like, after I'd already cycled through the entire music business and the record company and all that and quit you know, I went off on my own to, to be a musician. Then I decided, all right, if I'm going to try to do this as a career, I really need to kind of get it together and go to music school and sort of figure out what I'm doing. So you discovered in the process that it, it's it's never too late once you find what you're really passionate about. Absolutely. And, 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 and going to music school sort of, you know, a little bit later in life, I was probably 26, 27 when I was there, and also paying for it on your own as opposed to having your, your parents pay for your, your education kind of stuff makes for a very different type of experience. You know, I really knew that I wanted to be there for myself. I knew what I needed. I knew what I was trying to get out of it. Uh, and I, I had a very different level of dedication than the average, you know, 17-year-old fresh out of high school going to Berkeley College of Music. Mm -hmm. But just to, to add on to the whole sort of non-linear cyclical nature of, of the book narrative, 
towards the end, I tell a story about uh, playing the the first Obama inauguration with Sam Moore uh, from Sam and Dave, whom I was music director for. And uh, Sam was doing this all-star celebrity bash in Washington, D.C., and he had two special guests that were sitting in with him that night. Uh, one of them was named Elvis Costello, and the other one was named Sting. So we knew Sting was going to play Every Breath You Take with us with the band, and then we were told he was going to do the song Message in a Bottle, but he was going to do it uh, just a solo guitar and voice version like he'd done kind of famously on the Secret Policeman's Other Ball in 1981 right. as a recording right. that, I, yeah, that I grew up knowing and loving. So as we were rehearsing with him uh, on stage, you know, I said, uh, you're going to do Message too, right? And he said, yeah, we're going to I'm going to do that. And I said, I said, do you want us to to back you up. He's like, do you know it? I said, it's in C sharp, right? He's like, yeah. So I went from the very first time I was ever on a stage playing music in front of people, playing Message in a Bottle. Fast forward, I don't know exactly what it was, 27 years or something, and suddenly I'm playing it on stage with Sting. And it was just this mind-blowing. It was all I could do to just kind of like stay focused and stay in my body and you know, do my job. But, you know, like the, the kid inside you is just kind of like, I cannot believe this is happening. And, and I never could have conceived it. You know, standing in a, in a high school gymnasium, you cannot imagine that one day you're going to play this with the guy who wrote it, you know? Well, I always say that there are no coincidences. And I, I do believe that the universe lays out a path for us. We may not see it at the time, in the moment, but it is quite amazing when it when it does happen. Yeah, no, I believe what you're saying 100%. I think that, you know, I, and I, I extend that even to, to when people say, you know, how did you decide to play bass specifically? I think, I think your instrument chooses you. I don't think you choose the instrument. Like, it sort of fits your character. Mm -hmm. But even, even so, like, even knowing that, you know, bass fits my character and that knowing in 1982 I loved the police as everybody else did, you know, it's still, it's, it takes a whole lot of things that have to go exactly right to then perform that song with Sting, you know what I mean? Like that's, it's, it's just a whole lot of things have to be really, you know, lucky. Uh, in addition to everything else, the education that you had to get and the practice that you had to do and all that kind of stuff, the road miles, you know. Yeah, and uh, in addition to all of that experience and all those road miles, another one of your skills is uh, being a music director for um, a number of soul acts uh, as well as other performers. Right. And I was wondering from your perspective if you see the bass as the foundational instrument, especially when you're working with a band as music director. A hundred percent. It's absolutely, it is the foundation. It is the bass, B-A-S-E, as well as the B-A-S-S, the lowest frequency. Uh, and, you know, and just to add another one of our, our, our a quote from our, our buddy Sting, I believe he's the guy who said, you know, the, the chord isn't defined until I play a bass note and then define what the chord quality is. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you have a, a, a C and an E and a G in your right hand of the piano, not, you know, if Sting then plays an F sharp in the bass, suddenly we have a very different chord voicing than just a C major triad. You know, the bass kind of defines what the harmony is and the function of the harmony within the music that's getting a little theoretical mm -hmm. but a hundred percent I think it is the foundation in many ways and then when I'm conducting from the bass chair you know if I'm leading the band or something um, 
I'm very much conscious of the fact that the bass, our, our job is to kind of play the root note on the downbeat. Like we have to kind of be the first one in the door uh, rhythmically and harmonically. You know, the drums can kind of keep going in 4-4 four, four time and, and pretty much, you know, make an evening of it whether they actually know the material or not. Mm -hmm. I have to know the material. I have to know the chord changes. I have to know the harmonic rhythms. I have to know, like, and when I'm conducting, I kind of have to know everybody else's parts in the band, you know, better than them so that I can cue them when to come in and out and also have my own instrument uh, enough on autopilot that I can operate on the second level where I'm talking to them, I'm singing my parts, I'm playing my parts, you know, sort of like walking and patting yourself on the head and rubbing your stomach all at the same time. From the album Beauty is Only Knee Deep, that is the music of Ivan Funkboy Bodley with a special guest performance by Living Colors' Corey Glover with Nature Boy. Now, there's also some other exceptional musicians on this recording, and I was wondering if you could share with us some of the history behind this record. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's going way, way back. That was done in 1994. That was kind of really like the first thing I did after I graduated Berklee College of Music. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, Julian Coriel and, and Peter Adams, the keyboard player, and Adrian Harpham, the drummer, those were all classmates of mine from Berkeley. Um, the saxophone player on that side on that session is a guy named Deji Coker who I met in New York and I was doing you know jazz gigs with in New York the percussionist is the late great Rafael Cruz who I knew back from my time in New Orleans back when I you know was first learning how to play mm -hmm. and Rafael is a recording legend if you look at his his uh, page of credits uh, it's just as long as your arm uh, and then Corey I knew from uh, working with him uh, when I was at Epic Records, I was the publicist for Living Color for their first album when that came out. So as as with so many projects at the time, you make the phone calls to the people that you know who are your friends who will come over and, and play and sing on things. And they did. And I'm, I've heard that record. I hadn't heard it in a long time, but I just heard it recently. I'm like, you know, that kind of holds up. I do want to go back to the book for a minute. And um because you play such a diverse range of gigs, um, I'd really love for you to talk about the chapter Weddings, Funerals, and Bar Mitzvahs. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing when I was reading about the time that you played for a uh, funeral director's convention. <laughs> that, that happened, uh, that was in Baltimore. Um, it was a gig with the Shirelles. We were on the same bill with the Drifters. And we didn't know what it was rolling up to it. It's just a gig. It was at the Baltimore Convention Center. And it said uh, NFDA Convention. We're like, NFDA, okay, what does that stand for? And we saw a sign that said National Funeral Directors Association Convention. We're like, oh, boy. <laughs> now, we, now we knew where we really were. 
and there was a convention floor there with booths and they were selling embalming equipment and all this stuff and it was like very macabre but also you know it's their business so it was very sort of matter of fact and we were playing you know the closing night banquet so this is giant banquet hall probably a thousand people seated at tables and they had a huge uh production rig a big stage they had three or four camera video shoot we actually walked out with a video of, of the night uh, uh, lighting big sound big rig you know and and these folks you know who are very sort of somber and and business-like in their day-to-day life when they're among themselves and away from the public and away from civilians these people need to cut loose they were <laughs> they were yelling and screaming and do, doing everything but hanging from the chandeliers and having a tremendous time uh it was a great gig it was a lot of fun but like you you just really couldn't imagine what to expect walking into a situation like that like we're, we're really we're playing for a thousand morticians seriously and uh, it was great it was a great night well, it's funny you should mention morticians because another great artist that you've worked with is the self-proclaimed king of rock and soul, Dr. Solomon Burke. <laughs> and I remember reading in Peter Goralnik's book, Sweet Soul Music, that he was a licensed mortician. In fact, he had several businesses. That's right. And there's one memorable experience that you describe in the book. It was an event that you and your bandmates witnessed on stage yes. with Dr. Burke and the great DJ, um, Hal Jackson. Yeah, we, we loved Solomon. Uh, king Solomon Burke, the king of rock and soul. He was using the Uptown Horns Review band as his pickup band of choice. Kind of through, This is through the mid to late 90s kind of anytime he was in the New York area he would call uh, Crispin CO or uh, and the Uptown Horns to come back him up so we played behind him at um, uh, BAM out of Metro Tech we played behind him at Lincoln Center Avery Fisher Hall we played at JVC Jazz Festival with him we played um, uh, Saratoga I think it was the Newport Jazz Festival of Saratoga for like about 15,000 of our closest friends we played um tramps with him we did a lot of gigs with him it's just uh, an astounding character just a, a, a an interesting fascinating guy in, in all respects so he always had with him he had um 21 children he had 14 daughters and seven sons wow. and he very typically had at least one or two of them with him on the road to act as a valet an aide de camp uh, whatever what have you you know because he his stage setup was uh on his technical writer there had to be a throne literally a throne front and center because he was a, a, a very large man we met him when he was about 475 right. pounds so he would come out on stage sit upon his throne he also had two buckets of two dozen long stem roses with the thorns removed you know on the rider so that he would hand them out to ladies in the front row as part of his shtick as the night would go on and then his son or a valet or aide-de-camp or whoever it was would would you know periodically mop his brow as necessary so uh, one of these particular gigs, Hal Jackson, who's like the, the dean of, of rhythm and blues radio in New York City for many, many, many years, decades. Yeah. Right. He was the MC on the, on the gig. So he introduced Solomon and brought him on stage. And as he was walking off, Solomon, you know, grabbed his hand and sort of brought him back to center stage and gave a very large and sort of impassioned speech about how great Hal was and uh, 
how much he'd always enjoyed his programming and how important Hal had been in playing Solomon's record over his, the course of his entire career since the 50s. And he, he leaned over to his son and he whispered something in his ear. So his son turned his back to the audience, which means he was facing the band. So we watched him pull an envelope out of his pocket and count out five crisp brand new $100 bills. One, two, three, four, five. Wads them up, folds them up, and sort of palms them to his father as his father is talking about the great Hal Jackson on stage in front of a, an audience of thousands of people. Wow. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, Hal Jackson, and he shakes Hal's hand, and he gives him, you know, the mater d', the happy handshake, because mm-hmm. it was got, got the money in his, in his hand. And Hal doesn't know this is happening. He looks down, and he sees the money, and, and he, he, he jumps. He reacts. He's like, no, 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 and he tries to give it back, and Solomon, like, assures him, like, that, you know, this is all done without words. Just pats him on the palms, like, no, this is, that's for you. Thank you so much. And we just watched, we watched in real time, you know, the the ancient practice of of payola happening and before our eyes. You know, it never ever went away, even after it had it had been sort of prosecuted and debunked. And I know that from you know working inside the major label, it just sort of took other forms. Because, you know, disc jockeys were hugely influential and could make or break careers. So uh, Solomon was still working and still recording and still needed Mr. Jackson's services and and also was thanking him for years and years of support. And uh, we kind of didn't believe it, but we saw it happen. Listening to more great music from Ivan Funkboy Bodley with Look at That Cookie. This tune is uh, from a collection of tracks featured on his new label, Color Red Music, and this is a curated platform that you can find online at color-red.com. There's a chapter in the book titled, What's Your Worst Nightmare?, which tells the story about your experience performing in the hit Broadway show, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Now, had you been with the show for a period of time? Oh, yeah. No, no. I was subbing, and that was my first performance. That was your first performance? Wow. First performance, yeah. And subbing on a Broadway show, or any show, really, you know, it's it's like an exercise in terror. You basically have to wear a diaper when you're doing it, because there's no <laughs> rehearsal. There's just, uh, you know, you have one shot to sort of get it right. Actually, with Hedwig, there was a put-in rehearsal, but uh-huh. it wasn't for me. It was for uh, another one of the actors, but I, I got to sort of enjoy the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually did get to sort of, you know, run, run the show once before having an audience, mm-hmm. but... Uh, generally on, on a Broadway situation, you, you have one shot to get it right, and if you don't get it right, you know, we shan't work together again. You know, you, <laughs> you won't be rehired. Um, so I, I knew my 
my choreography. I knew my parts. I knew, you know, the, the Hedwig band was uh, in costume, in makeup, on stage. We had, uh, we had lines. We had choreo. I had things I actually had to sing. I knew all my vocal parts. Uh, and at the end of the show, uh, as I went into in the book, you know, my instructions were to put the bass down walk up to the front of the stage with the rest of the cast, take a bow, and go home. That's, that was the last thing I had to do at the end of the show. When we got to that point of the show, I was wearing a, a necklace that had a, a little pendant on a, on a metal chain that had somehow gotten wrapped around uh, a badge that was on this leather jacket and my costume, and it physically locked the base to my body. So I could not get it off. And I started like trying to pull the the <laughs> strap off of the off of the the strap button, and basically what I was doing is I was pulling it tighter, pulling it down. I was making a tighter and tighter knot that included my my, my hair, the <laughs> necklace, the strap. Like it was it was not going anywhere, and this was taking place on in front of a, you know a thousand of my closest friends, and it probably only took twenty seconds or so, but it seemed like an eternity on stage. And the entire cast is kind of looking at me like. What, what are you doing? <laughs> the music director finally just said, why don't you just, just bring the bass? Just come on over. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's yeah, a good idea. <laughs> so I walked over, and but I'm still, the bass is hardwired to the stage. So I'm still tethered to the rig. So even though I can now do the bow, I can't get off stage still. I'm still, I still haven't figured out how to get off of the, physically off of the stage. But the music director like sort of took mercy upon my soul, and he just reached over and he unplugged the bass and threw the cable. So I was like, Oh, thanks. Never <laughs> occurred to me, you know, because I was trying to follow the instructions I was given. I wasn't prepared to improvise to actually get off of the stage. Um, but I, I could, it just occurred to me that that was the kind of thing that would sort of be, you know, uh, equivalent to, to going to school and realize you forgot to wear clothes or, you know, something like that. You know, you're just, <laughs> you, you couldn't be more publicly uh, uh, made a spectacle of if you tried. And, and uh, I survived. I was fine. <laughs> So I take out. it you did work again on Broadway after that. I, on that show, they had me back. They were they, they kind of laughed about it. <laughs> we had a little huddle in the wings after we got off stage, kind of uh, part of that show, because the band was really part of it with, with uh, John Cameron Mitchell. And John Cameron Mitchell looked at me and said, now that's rock and roll. I was like, yeah, man. That is just priceless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off a lot. I'm off a lot. That is the trio of James Dower on keyboards, Joe Goretti on drums, and my guest today, Ivan Funkboy Bodley on bass, with a track named after the classic New Orleans sandwich that is Muffalata. Now, this is um, part of your catalog that's currently being distributed and licensed through your uh, new association with Color Red Music. Tell me how this all came about. Well, you know, as you say, there are no coincidences and everything happens for a reason. So uh, my guy at Color Red Music is my friend Lee Popa. And Lee Popa I met when he was in a band 
1988 on Epic Records, where I was an employee. I was his publicist. He had a band out of Chicago, a rock band called the Slam and Watusis. And I met him then, and his manager, Dave Fry, went on to become Cheap Tricks manager, and, and uh, Lee went on to mix front of house for Living Color and Cheap Trick and the Rolling Stones and everybody else on the face of the earth. So when uh, life circled back around to the quarantine, everything locked down, Lee had gotten this job with Color Red Music, which is uh, founded by Eddie Roberts, who's the guitar player with the new Master Sounds, if you know them. And they've been putting out, you know, just tremendous volumes of, of music and very artist-friendly label. It's a very creative place. Uh, and I was putting out recordings that I was making in quarantine, sort of, you know, by file sharing with all my friends who were similarly locked down and, you know, sort of posting these things on Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. And, and Lee was like, I wonder why I didn't think of you earlier for Color Red. Like, you know, I had a whole catalog full of material that they were just, you know, just theirs for the taking. And they have a whole music licensing division, which is something that's, that's you know, potentially an income stream and very important to me, sort of like having my material available not only to the public to purchase, but also available to, uh, you know, film uh music coordinators, television music coordinators, you know, uh, libraries, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So anybody can can now... Uh, license the music. Exactly. They can license the music. And that, that stuff has been sitting on my hard drive, you know, some of it for you know, 12, 13 years now, doing nothing, gathering dust. So now it's available for, you know, uh, music supervisors at all. And I'm, I'm very excited about it. And Lee's done me just a great kindness by being a long-term friend and also now my label liaison at Color Red. Now, one of the tracks that you first released on Color Red is a tune called Crab Walk, which we featured at the top of the show. And you've got some uh, really great people on this recording. You want to tell us about the band personnel? I do indeed. You know, what I found during the lockdown period was that, you know, a lot of, not a lot of, all of my musicians and friends were in a similar state of of not being able to work not being able to travel not being able to record so um the first one that got released on color red is a song called crab walk and i started that one uh with my drummer friend kenny soul over here in queens we both live in queens i think that one we probably played together just he and i in his basement he's got a recording rig down there because i think that was right before the quarantine hit and Kenny was the, the drummer in the band Dag that was on Columbia in the 90s and the band Nantucket that was a, a big, you know, 70s Southern rock stalwart back in the day. And, and also I got Kenny to, to play with us for the last few years of the, of the Sam Moore band. So I've, I've literally dragged him around the planet with me. So we created this rhythm bed. And then I started writing, you know, chords and melodies to go with that. And I started asking sort of my friends if they could chime in. So my friend James Dower plays keyboards on it. He's up in Massachusetts. Uh, my friend Doug Hendricks, who is the percussionist on the Broadway show In the Heights, he, he charmed in a, a brilliant percussion part. Um, parts, I should say. He gave me about five or six tracks. Uh, Crispin Seo, who's the leader of the Uptown Horns, is the gentleman who played, right? Crispin played the alto solo on James Brown's Living in America. He's a he's a bona fide rock star. He he played saxophone, played four, three, uh, three or four saxophones on it, as a matter of fact. And then finally, uh, Moses Moe 
from the band Mother's Finest uh, was available, you know, who I had met through Kenny and done some work for and done some recording mm -hmm. for, was available mm -hmm. to, to play on guitar. And Moses was one of those guys. I remember seeing him with Mother's Finest in the 70s opening for the Atlanta Rhythm Section down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And this was like, it was before I think I even had ever picked up an instrument and uh, sort of might have had vague aspirations to be a, a musicians. But it, when I saw Mother's Finest on stage, I said, I don't know what that is, but whatever that is, I want to do that. And Moses was standing on stage. You know, he was the guitar player, the brilliant guitar player with, with Mother's Finest. So again, to work with him now, uh, many years later, is one of these full circle sort of moments for me. And he, of course, he played brilliantly too. Like it's just, the track's just a ton of fun all the way around. Yeah, it's uh, exceptional work with uh, exceptional musicians. I'd like to close on having you talk about what I believe is the essence of your book. There's a chapter titled, What is a Rock Star? And it's a term, as you describe it, that is too casually thrown around in a number of professions. You can be labeled a rock star plumber, a rock star scientist. <laughs> so from your perspective, I'd like to get your take on three things that you explore in the book. And they are, what is fame? What is rock stardom? And how do you define career success? Yeah, I, I've had to do a lot of thought about it because, you know, I've sort of been m moving in those circles my entire career, and you have to just sort of figure out what fame is and what stardom is and what success is and how it relates to, you know, you and or, you know, specifically me personally. And, and if I'm accepting what I'm doing is is successful in any way, shape or form, you know, so, you know, the the. As you say, the term rock star has kind of become a general adjective that can be put in front of anything um, that doesn't necessarily uh, mean anything other than that person is really good at or they're exceptionally good at whatever that thing is, you know. So on the one hand, a rock star would sort of imply that you're 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 very skilled at your craft, you know. Um, and on the other hand, you sort of have to break that down and say, you know, what, what is the stardom, you know, is fame and fortune are constantly used together, but they're two very separate things. You know, you can be very famous or infamous and everybody knows who you are and not have made a penny doing anything, you know, remotely creative or that relating to what you're famous for. Um, and subsequently you can also be, you know, quite financially rewarded for things that, nobody knows anything about like i wouldn't say a, you know a banker would necessarily be well known so they're not famous but they're fortunate you know they have that going for them so it, it's kind of a um an amalgam and you sort of have to find out where your place is within it because on top of sort of being good at what you do and having the skill set to be successful then you also have to have luck on your side like the market has to be ready for what you're selling you know and and it's not always the case to sort of uh, so many things and, I, and again i learned this sort of from working inside the record company so many things have to go right to make a hit record you know or make somebody a star it's not just having a great recording because there are a lot of great recordings that came out that never heard by anybody because 
it's a timing thing. Like the market has to be ready for it. The fans have to be ready for it. You know, like it has to sort of hit the popular conscience in just the right way. And on top of that, then once it does, you have to have a complete marketing arm of a major corporation behind you to then reinforce that and get the distribution to, you know, get it out to the people where they can actually hear it and or purchase it and sort of become successful that way. So knowing that all these things have to sort of go together and everything has to go right to sort of become a star, you have to then decide, you know, is that the specific aspect of it that is the the reward, the sole reward that you're looking for as a career musician? And for me, clearly the answer is no, that's not the only thing. You know, I don't mind if somebody's heard something that I've played on or seen something that I've done and they're enthusiastic about it or they love it. But that's not the sole reason that I do it. You know, clearly I enjoy playing the bass. You know, that's just something I love doing. I like traveling. I like uh, playing all different types of music with all different types of people. Uh, And the fact that I can then also make a living at it is just like an extra bonus. Uh, and, And I think there's a whole career path that's sort of like a you know, what I call myself is a working class rock star because I work for a living. You know, I, I hump my own amps. I, I'm driving the van. I'm driving the bus. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing the arrangements. I'm doing all the stuff myself. But I've kept my, you know, I've kept my rent paid and I haven't had a day job since 1995. So, I mean, that, that speaks to some level of accomplishment. Yeah, and at the core of it, musicians just love to play, and in theory, you would play for free, although that's usually never the case for a professional like yourself. I agree with that, and I think that the joke that we often tell among ourselves is that we, we do the gig for free. What we get paid for is the logistics. We get paid for the travel. That's the stuff that really doesn't feel like a lot of fun. You know, if you're on a 14-hour flight to Tokyo to do two gigs and turn around and come right back— you know, you're not going to have any tailbone left by the time you get back. You know, that's what you're getting paid for. The gig is just pure, pure joy. And if you're playing Soul Man on stage with Sam Moore, you know, there's not, I would would do that for free any day of the week, you know. Don't, but don't tell his manager that. (laughs) The book is Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. Ivan, where can listeners go to pick up a copy? Well, it's available on Amazon.com, of course, and uh, you can find all sorts of purchasing options at my website, which is www.funkboy.net. If you need an autographed copy, I'll be happy to give you that, and it's got links to the Amazon thing as well if you want to just do it that way. they got Kindle, uh, paperback, and there's going to be a hardback edition coming out very soon on Amazon as well. Well, this has been great fun. I'm sure we could spend many more hours talking about many more experiences I really enjoyed reading the book. It was a very entertaining read. Ivan, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your story. And thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. My thanks to Ivan Bodley for sharing his amazing musical journey with us. You can check out all of Ivan's music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and also at Color Red Music. And be sure to subscribe to our show by visiting our website at lifeinthegrooves.com or lifeinthegroovespodcast.com. Life in the Grooves is produced by Tour de Force Entertainment Group. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to share, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Charles Urich. Thanks for listening.